we're starting a new series today simply called The Wilderness. It's a part of our summer series. And uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at being stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. It's kind of an overview of the events that take place in Exodus and Numbers. And uh, so we'll go through a few passages there as we uh, take a look at it. 40 years, stuck 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years is a long time. 40 years ago, in 1977, the median American household income was $13,572, and the average brand new home cost $45,000. Gas was 62 cents a gallon, which was pretty high for the time, and a 1977 Chevy Nova sticker price was $3,600. A first-class postage stamp was 13 cents, and a gallon of whole milk was $1.68. Today, the Dow Jones is over 21,000, but in 1977, the Dow averaged 895. Inflation was 11%. Mortgage rates were 8.96%. And four years later, when Elsie and I moved here to begin working with this congregation and bought our first home, mortgage interest rates had soared to 21% interest. A lot has changed. In 40 years, uh, 40 years ago, Elsie and I got married. We celebrated recently uh, our 40th anniversary, and that sounds like a long time, and yet it has gone by so fast. But I'll tell you why it has gone so fast. It's been good. It's not been perfect. No marriage ever is. There have been times of disappointment and sorrow and setbacks along the way, and there have been times when I disagreed with her and she turned out to be right. (laughs) But there've also been times when she's disagreed with me and she also turned out to be right. (laughs) But there have been so many more blessings than disappointments, so much more joy than sorrow, so much more laughter than tears, and, and I'm grateful. That's why it has seemed to go so fast. But if our marriage If our marriage had been a wilderness-type experience, living in a relationship that was dry or lonely or empty, why, 40 years would have seemed like an eternity. That pretty much describes the plight of the Israelites as they spent a whole generation and then some wandering in a dry, lonely, empty wilderness between the borders of Egypt And the land where they were headed, the land that was called the land of promise, where Abraham had been a shepherd 500 years before, and you say, wow, I didn't realize that the Sinai wilderness was was that big, that it would take 40 years to walk across. Well, it didn't. It's not that far. But the story of why they spent 40 years there is pretty instructive. There are some huge lessons that grow out of it. So let's get to the banks of the Jordan River the first time. They had spent two years and four months in the wilderness up to that point in time since they had crossed over the Red Sea until they had reached the banks of the Jordan River. And one whole year of that had been spent at the base of Mount Sinai when God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And God was shaping them mentally, emotionally, socially, and most of all spiritually for this next great adventure that they were going to take. You see, God is taking a group of former slaves, people who had been in the land of Egypt for 400 years, who had been steeped in everything Egyptian, and God is trying to remold and make them as a nation. So he took two years and four months to get that accomplished. 
But when they reach the banks of the Jordan River, they're getting ready to go over and take the land that God has promised them. And Moses sends in spies to check things out. He he sends them in not only to check out the inhabitants of the land, but the geography of the land, the produce of the land. Is this really the land that uh, we've been told about? And so he picks a man from every tribe in the nation of Israel, and these 12 spies form a party that go into the land of Canaan. And boy, what a trip it was. They spent 40 days checking out the land, and it was a grand experience. When they got home, they described it as a land flowing with milk and honey, which was an ancient proverbial expression that means, man, it's good stuff. This is a fertile place. Toward the end of their time there, they cut a single cluster of grapes, which had to be carried on a pole between two of their shoulders. Now, I'm here to tell you, I have never seen a cluster of grapes that had to be carried on a pole between two men's shoulders. But then again, there are places where things grow pretty good. In Alaska, for instance, our, 50, our, our 49th state, during the summer, because the sunlight is out so long, things just grow unbelievable. Here's a picture of one head of cabbage from Alaska. Now, now I, I, this is the image that I kind of have in this story that they, they bring back this cluster of grapes and it looks like that compared to what they have seen in this two years and four months in the wilderness. They brought back pomegranates and clusters of figs. I mean, it was truly a land of abundance. That was the good news. However, 10 of the spies thought that the bad news they had to share outweighed the good news they had to celebrate. They said there are fortified cities there. There are powerful armies there. And then there are the descendants of Anak, known for their size and strength. Big men, powerful men. Had the Canaanites enjoyed football and basketball, the descendants of Anak would have dominated the NFL and the NBA, if that gives you an image of these kind of people. And it was this discovery that so disheartened the team that they recommended to the people they not even try to take the land. It's a hopeless cause, was their response. Now, that was 10 of the 12 spies. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were, were on the opposite side of the fence. They said, listen, if God can get us out of Egypt, God can get us into the new land. God can do anything. Those people aren't any greater threat to us than what the Egyptians had been in the past. But as the Israelites, like we so often do, listened to the reports, they sided with the majority, not with the faithful. This is what we read in Numbers chapter 13. This is where Caleb speaks. The people are just, they're grumbling, they're, they're, they're murmuring, oh, this is such bad news. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, oh, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours the things living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. And listen to this. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Can you hear the defeat in their report, in their very voices? Oh, we can't do this. We aren't able. We can't undertake such a task. We look like grasshoppers to them and even to us. Do you hear the emphasis on the we? Joshua and Caleb's focus was on the power of God, 
Where the ten depended on their logic, the other two depended upon the Lord. Now, like the Israelites, folks, it's awful easy today to just focus on our logic, our human ability to reason things out and forget the fact that God can do anything. And we allow our logic to override our dependence on the Lord, and that always gets us into trouble. That's always a tragic choice, and it costs the Israelites dearly. So, what can we learn out of this brief overview this morning of, of this adventure of 40 years? Well, just a couple things I want to leave with you. And the first one is simply this. In the wilderness moments of your life, God teaches us that choices have consequences. Uh, I imagine many of you have, uh, on vacations or something, driven across the continental divide. And uh, maybe the road where you were, were driving even had a sign that said continental divide. Then it gave the elevation in the mountains where you were. The continental divide, of course, is that place in the mountain range where when the rain falls, depending on where the drop lands, it will either catch in the stream that flows to the Pacific or it will catch in a little stream that eventually makes its way to the Atlantic. And two drops that fell from the same cloud with just a a little bit of difference end up in oceans that are worlds apart. God's punishment for the people's faithlessness was to spend 40 years wandering. You see, one tiny choice, and they ended up worlds apart from where God was hoping to take them. The same is true of life. Every action we take has consequences as to where we end up, just like the raindrops that fall from the clouds at the continental divide. And you say, well, why did God make them spend 40 years in the wilderness? Well, the 40 came from one year for every day that the spies had been in the land of Canaan. And during those 40 years, all the people who were 20 years old and older, the people who said, no, we can't do this, which was in essence saying, and neither can God, until that generation had lived their lives and died in the wilderness. But it set the stage for a new generation to come along and make a difference. Now, there were two exceptions. Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who said, God will give us the land. We can be victorious. Joshua and Caleb and their families entered the land of promise. What you see very quickly in the story is that choices have consequences. And the choices that you and I make for our lives, like the continental divide, will flow down to the generations behind us. Where those choices fall will greatly influence the direction of those who are coming in the generations. The word you choose to speak in a crisis moment may change the course of the future. Will your word be harsh or encouraging? Will that word lift up or put down? Will it help or will it hurt? Will it lighten the load or make it heavier? Will it provide direction or more confusion? The very words we speak carry consequences. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas albums, and I know Elsie likes it too, we play it every Christmas season, is, uh, was, was recorded by the Carpenters, this brother and sister duo, Richard and, and Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter's death came in 1983 from heart failure that was the result of anorexia. She was only 32 at the time. In my estimation, uh, I, I think Karen Carpenter had one of the most beautiful mellow voices of all time. 
But it was a comment that came from a reporter that changed the course and the direction of her life. The reporter wrote about Richard Carpenter and his chubby little sister, Karen. One word, chubby, drove Karen to embrace anorexia as a means of weight control that eventually led to her death at 32. One word, consequences. Be so careful with the words you choose. Use them wisely. And that's not all. The impact of our choices may affect generations that we won't even live to see. I don't know about you, but that's kind of scary uh, to me. But that's exactly what the Bible means when it says the sins of the fathers will be visited on the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that God's going to punish the fourth generation for something that great-grandpa did. It just means that what great-grandpa did will maybe still be impacting the fourth generation down the road. Researcher Mahela Bernard makes this observation. There is a reason why people become abusive. It is often an unconscious attempt to cope with the abuse they themselves experienced as children or adolescents. The cycle of abuse repeats itself not only within the context of a single relationship, but also across generations in an uncommon repetition from parents to children. Don't be afraid to be the one to break the cycle. It, it, it seems inconceivable, but it's true that if you grow up in an abusive home, you are more likely to be abusive than not. If you grow up with an alcoholic parent, you are more likely to be an alcoholic yourself than not. There is something about the consequences of the choices that we make in life that impact generations to come. Here's something else. When we look back to the Hebrew people during this 40 years in the wilderness, what one word would best describe their attitude? I think they tended to be a lot more negative than positive. And those kinds of attitudes have consequences, and they spread like wildfire. You see, a negative attitude is contagious. Notice how it spread among the people. They stopped thinking about that giant cluster of grapes on the pole and started focusing on the giant people or what they perceived to be giant people compared to themselves that lived in the land. They feared who was there, not who was leading them there. They forgot all about the giant God who had rescued them from Egypt when they thought about the giants that might be in that land or the giant problems that they would face. If God could rescue them from Egypt, by the way, folks, Egypt was the greatest country at that damn time. God rescued them without the Israelites having any weaponry. Then God could surely get them across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan and give them victory there. Don't forget, God has your back on the other side of the wilderness moments of your life. What you can't see, God can. What you can't handle, God can. What you can't accomplish, God can. So be careful with negative attitudes. They are ever so contagious. And I've learned that bad news has a way of spreading faster than good news. Hey, when was the last time you saw on the top of your television screen what you're watching the news? Have you seen this? Breaking news. Every news channel does it anymore. Breaking news. When was the last time that breaking news was about a group of neighbors who restored the home of an elderly widow in their neighborhood and did something nice? It's never that way when you see breaking news. Breaking news is always something sad or tragic or negative or, or frightening. Why is it that 
that bad news travels faster than good news. Why is it you can get 10 good comments and you get one negative comment and you fixate on the negative comment? It's because negativity is contagious. Here's something else. A negative attitude often distorts the facts. Look at this description from Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Seriously? They didn't sit around pots of food all day long. They were slaves, for goodness sakes. For at least two centuries, they'd been praying that God would rescue them from the slavery. And in a few months, they're out in the wilderness, and they think that everything back in Egypt was really good stuff. Negativity often distorts the facts. We have short memories when it comes to our discontentment. And here's something, too. A negative attitude demonstrates a lack of faith. A negative spirit never moves the heart of God. God provided for the people, not because they grumbled, but because it's God's nature to provide for his own. That's something the parent learns real quick. All right? You don't, you don't give in to your kids because they're grumbling. You provide for your children because that's the nature of a parent. And they find ways to do that. Why do you think we call it the terrible twos? It's because that's where kids are starting to experiment with how they can manipulate their parents. You'll provide for them what they need because that's what a parent does. But you won't give in to their fits of complaint because that teaches them the wrong kinds of values. You see, there, there's bad news and there's good news. And we oftentimes get fixated on the bad news and we focus on the negative. But, but good news is a fresh way to look at things. It may be the very same thing. It may be that sort of continental divide moment where just a, a tweak of the attitude and the drop will fall on the other side of the divide. <laughs> I kind of like, I was reading about an, an, an Amtrak engineer. Uh, the Amtrak train loaded with people uh, had engine trouble, had to stop on the tracks. They didn't know how long it was going to be. So he comes over the loud speaker system, the public address system, in the train. It's the engineer. And he says to the train, the folks on the train said, well, I've got some bad news for you. He said, the engine has got major problems. I don't think we're going to make it to our destination on time. Here's the good news. You're not in an airplane. <laughs> now, that was a simple statement, but you know what? That kind of changes your perspective on how you look at things. Instead of being disappointed that they maybe weren't going to make the station on time, there was laughter, and it does give you another perspective. Yeah, that's right. We, we may be stopped for a while, but we're not falling out of the sky. Good news has a way of permeating and even being more powerful than the negative news and behaviors. You see, an encouraging attitude will permeate generations as well, even better and longer than the negative, so says the Scripture. The gifts of laughter, joy, love, and kindness will continue to bless those that you'll never meet. Douglas Weiss has succinctly stated, you are God's solution for someone or something on earth. And that solution begins with our attitudes. 
Now, dads, this being Father's Day, we need to remember that God was acting as a father through all of this to the Israelites. Now, it may seem harsh to us, 40 years, but it helped set the course for the ultimate victory in the next generation. Oh, I like that. You see, that's what we're about today. We, we want to set the course for the next generation. We are people helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. I'm far more concerned now about our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren's generation, that the church will be faithful, that the church will stay true, that the church will be vibrant when they get to their adulthood. Because you see, as we've talked so oftentimes before, getting them home is the most important task that we have in this world. You see, a dad's refusal to give a piece of candy right before supper may seem harsh or even uncaring to the child, but the dad knows it's the most caring choice he can make. It's the right thing to do because he understands what the child really needs. He understands what the child cannot understand. Healthy food is more important than the, to the child's future than a momentary treat with the candy. Setting limits in life helps. It does not hinder our children. If you never say no, you never make your child wait. If you never communicate that some things are right and other things are wrong, your son or your daughter will struggle through life. As a matter of fact, there is nothing loving about teaching the principle of consequences. The child who grows up without limits or boundaries is ill-equipped to survive in this world. He will not respect anybody but himself. He will find himself in difficulties and blame others or the world in general for his problems. He will move from one broken relationship to another broken relationship because he's incapable of building a loving relationship due to the fact that everything centers on him. When your child can do no wrong, he may grow up to do nothing right. In the end, giving your child total freedom with no restraints is to build a prison around him. Henry Brandt noted this. He said, to discipline a child is not to punish him for stepping out of line, but to teach that child the way he should go. Discipline, therefore, includes everything that you do in order to help your children learn. So dads, let's do the best that we can. But remember this. We, you know, we are fallible people here. We are not perfect people. You won't have the right solution every time, even when you think you've got a good one. Three-year-old Billy, one of five kids, broke into sobs. He swallowed a penny, thought he was not going to survive. He was inconsolable. His mother couldn't help him. His dad couldn't help him. And then in a stroke of genius, Billy's dad thought of an idea, slipped his hand into his pocket, secretly pulled out another penny. And you know how dads do that trick. They'll reach up to the ear and pretend like they pulled the penny out of the ear. That's what Billy's dad did. Billy's eyes brightened and he turned happy. He began to giggle. And before his dad could react, Billy grabbed the penny, swallowed it and said, do it again, dad, do it again. <laughs> Some of your ideas may work well, they may not work so well. But just keep in mind that there are consequences and the positive outweighs the negative. The continental divide. One word, one action, one thought on either side may make a world of difference.
Here's the other thing that I want you to see out of this text, and that's simply this. In the wilderness moments of life, God gives us hope. I don't know if you, you, you saw this picture as we were going through. The Israelites, you know, come up out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea experience, and then God closes up the Red Sea behind them, shuts off Egypt, and then they get to the banks of the Jordan River eventually. They cross the Jordan. God parts the water there too. They take the land. God gives them the land, and that's called the land of promise. Now, it's, when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that all of the Israelites were baptized into Moses at the Red Sea. And then when they get to the other side of this journey, they enter the promised land, and throughout the scriptures, the promised land is always symbolic of heaven where we're headed eventually. But in between, in between is the wilderness. Now, that, that's a picture of us. We begin our life in Christ at our, at our baptism on this side of the coin, and we end up by stepping over those gates into heaven eternity, and what happens is that life has to be lived out in the wilderness, this 40 years of in-between time. And there are dry, lonely, empty moments all along the way in the wilderness. But what we also learn from this period of Israel's history is the hope that God provided during that time. We sometimes focus, focus in on the punishment. But here's what we often miss. In the wilderness, he provided daily bread in the form of manna. He provided meat from the quail, water from the rock. Their clothes and their sandals did not wear out. No enemy conquered or was able to conquer them. They had this beautiful worship experience that took place on a weekly basis with God in the ta at the tabernacle in the desert. But most of all, most of all, God was with them. There was a pillar of cloud that accompanied them during, during, the, during the day. There was a pillar of fire that guided them at night. God, throughout that 40 years, made his presence visible so that the Israelites would never forget that, yes, you are being punished, but I am walking every step of the way through the wilderness with you. Can I remind you this morning that know how desperate your wilderness moments are? You are not alone. God has never asked us to go where he will not go with us and lead us. Your clothes may not wear out in this world, but most of us change our clothes, buy new clothes before our old ones wear out anyway. And you may not have manna on the ground every day that you wake up, but our pantries are pretty full. And we may not have a visible pillar of fire, but just look around you at what God's presence is like in this world. You know, that's one of the things I love about the church I am encouraged by our worship together. I am a stronger person when I am with you. I am helped by you. I am encouraged by you. You see, that's what the church is. We come together. We encourage one another. We build one another. We are the way God is helping to get us through this wilderness. We are the presence of God to one another in this world. God works through his people. And in helping others, we ourselves are better. But the best part is, God has given us this promise. Jesus said, before leaving this earth, some of his last words were these, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. Be confident in this. This is my promise. I am with you to the very end of the age. So don't lose heart when you feel stuck in the wilderness moments of life. You're gonna make it through. When everything ahead of you seems like a giant that you can't conquer, you just remember that God is greater than your giants if your faith is greater than your fears. 
You will have disappointments. There will be times when you feel yourself sinking low. But that's just life in the wilderness. By the way, don't you forget, the sun sinks low and has a setting spell every day. But it always comes up the next morning, bright and wonderful. You can rise above all of the wilderness problems too if you trust the Lord who walks with you through the wilderness.